And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we come, O Lord, as sinners who are hungry for your word, asking for our daily bread, asking for you to show us our need for Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. We thank you, O Lord, for his work. Thank you for his death in our place. We pray, O Lord, that our lives will be more and more conformed to his image as we see our need for him in your word today. Bless the preaching and the studying of your word that it may not return to you void. We know that you promise in your word that it never does return to you void. So we ask, O Lord, that your word would do your work in us today for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, today marks our 100th lesson in John. Number 100, and I think we're going to probably get to around 150 or 160. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 11 today. John chapter 14 is a chapter that is just filled with words of comfort. Because as it starts out, what we see is that the hearts of the disciples are troubled. And the chapter starts with Jesus saying, do not let your heart be troubled. What a great word that is for us in a time like this. What a great word it was for the disciples in the circumstances that they faced. Times of uncertainty. Times of persecution. Times in which their flesh would rise up and make them feel very afraid. And so Jesus spoke these words to them. All the words in chapter 14 as words of comfort. Words of comfort. And these are tough times. We need those types of words too. We need words of comfort. As most of you probably know by now, one of the highlights of my year so far has been becoming a grandpa. Um, I don't know, guys, how many of you guys look forward to being a grandpa someday. If, that, if, you, if you think of that and it makes you think, oh man, I'll be really old when that happens. Do I look old? Come on now. <laughs> but what I, <laughs> don't answer that. But, but what I do know uh, is that I have looked forward to being a grandpa for um, several years with great anticipation. And let me say that if you are not a grandparent yet, Everything that you hear about being a grandparent is absolutely true. It is so much fun. It is such a joy. But one of the things that I've enjoyed uh, is watching my grandson developing a personality. And even at seven months of age, let me tell you, that boy has so much personality. Uh, he might be the most determined seven-month-old baby I've ever seen. He just has no quit in him, for better or for worse. I mean, how many babies are bear crawling at six months? Not many. Uh, that's a determined baby. And the natural thing to do when you see a baby developing personality traits is to compare those personality traits with the traits of the parents. Where did my grandson get his sense of determination? Uh, his, his mom and dad are both uh, very determined people, uh, so I, I would assume that it's from them. 
but physical characteristics are the same way. Um, as he develops various physical characteristics, you start to see how he resembles uh, his mom and his dad and, and other family members. For my grandson, uh, when I look at him, I see his dad's smile. Uh, I see his mom's eyes. Uh, I, I see the color hair that I used to have once upon a time when my hair was actually on top of my head, uh, which is the same color that some of his cousins have, same color hair that some of his cousins have. But we have a colloquialism for these types of things. We say that a child is uh, a spitting image, or we say a child is a chip off the old block, or we'll say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, you might hear somebody say, uh, he's his father's son, or she's her mother's daughter. Uh, these colloquialisms all acknowledge the fact that a child will share many of the same qualities and characteristics, both physical and in terms of personality, uh, as their parents have. And that can be a blessing or that can be a curse, as every parent with a healthy level of self-awareness already knows. But the fact is, it's universally recognized that children resemble their parents in many ways. Now, we want to keep these things in mind uh, as we come to the passage that we'll be looking at today in John's Gospel. Again, Jesus has been speaking words of comfort to his disciples. It's the night of the Last Supper. It's the night on which he was betrayed and arrested uh, and would be tried by Pontius Pilate. He's told the disciples that he was going to be betrayed, and so they're distressed about that. He's told them that Peter was even going to deny him three times before the rooster crowed, and they're distressed about that. He's told them that he's going to a place where they cannot follow him, they cannot come yet, uh, and they're distressed about that because after three years of following him, now he's telling them, you're going to have to be without me. And so they're distressed. Uh, he, he's told them that he will come back and bring them with him to the place that he is going to prepare for them. And when Thomas pointed out that he didn't know where Jesus was going, and so how would he possibly know the way to get there? Jesus pointed out that Thomas and the disciples, they actually did know how to get where Jesus was going because they knew and they believed in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus followed that by telling them, nobody comes to the Father but through me. Now, if we pay very close attention to the, the trend, to the things, the, the themes that are starting to develop in Jesus' word, what we're starting to see is that Jesus in this chapter is going to start really elaborating on the doctrine of the Trinity. As he has now mentioned the Father uh, twice within five verses. So Jesus isn't making uh, a new um, revelation about his relationship with the Father, with the, the first person of the Trinity. After all, when Jesus' disciples asked him how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, uh, the prayer that Jesus taught them, the, the Lord's Prayer, begins with the words, Our Father who is in heaven. And not only that, but even throughout John's Gospel, Jesus has made this clear. He said things like, the Father and I are one. That's what he said in chapter 10, verse 30. But what we're going to see as we continue to look at John's gospel is that the disciples still didn't understand this relationship that Jesus has alluded to several times now in which he's starting to, to flesh out a little bit more, this relationship between himself and the Father. 
And so Philip is going to ask for clarification, uh, which Jesus will graciously provide. But the point of this passage that we come to today is that because Jesus and the Father are one, we have to understand that to see and know Jesus is to see and know the Father. To see and know Jesus is to see and know the Father. Thus, if we are to know God, if we are to be in right standing with God, we must understand that Jesus, and only Jesus, is the true and fullest revelation of God. So having told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, Jesus now continues speaking words of comfort to the disciples. Let's start with verses 7 to 9. Jesus continues after responding to uh, Thomas. He says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Once again, what we see is that Jesus is interrupted by a question. The disciples are just, they're so confused. In their moment of distress, they're finding out how little they really know. And while Jesus was very, very gracious with Thomas, and he's gracious here. We do, I think, start to get the sense that maybe he's getting a little bit exasperated with Philip's question. Jesus said, if you had known me. Now, we need to understand, he's not saying that the disciples don't know him. Because what he goes on to say is that from now on, you do know him. You do know the Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. He's saying, you're going to start to understand this. Obviously, they do know Jesus. And we should add, by the way, that the you here is second person plural. Uh, he's not still addressing Thomas's objection. Rather, now he's turned his attention back to the disciples as a whole. But they've been with him for three years now. Three years they've been following him. They do know him. They do believe in him. They know him very well. They know his mannerisms they kind of have an idea of what to expect from him. And yet, what we saw last week is that the disciples didn't know the full significance of Jesus yet. They knew some important things, some very important things. They knew the important thing. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And they believed in him. But they didn't have the same kind of knowledge of him that they would have in only a few days when he rose again from the grave. They didn't have their minds at this point. They didn't have their minds wrapped around what Jesus came to do. To live a perfect, sinless life and to present Himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin on behalf of everyone who believes in Him. They didn't understand that He would rise from the dead on the third day, which is odd because He told them so many times. He told them on multiple occasions. And they clearly didn't understand what Jesus is saying here, that to know Him, to know Jesus, is to know the Father. There's still a lot of mystery and, and confusion there for them. But the things that were about to take place were going to change all that. Jesus says, from now on, you know Him. 
which indicates there's a change that's coming. Something's going to change the fact that you don't recognize that you're seeing the Father when you see me. They were going to understand why Jesus came. They were going to understand the full significance of His atoning, perfect, sinless life and death. And they were going to understand that Jesus and the Father are distinct, and yet they are one. Jesus says from now on, which indicates that the things that they were previously in the dark about, the things that they were ignorant of, were going to have sufficient light shined on them for them to understand. Through the events that would unfold over the next few days and through the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus makes later in this chapter, that he and the Father will send another helper to help them understand all things, know all things, and by receiving the Holy Spirit, who is the helper, uh, at Pentecost, about 40 days later, the disciples would gain a much fuller, a much robust, much more robust understanding of this relationship between Jesus and the Father, a much more dynamic understanding of God in general. But Jesus says something that confuses Philip here. He says to the disciples, You have seen him. Seen whom? seen the Father. Jesus was certain of this, but Philip uh, wasn't so sure. Jesus has no doubt as he's saying this, but Philip is just confused. And so he makes a request of Jesus saying, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Now it seems that Philip may have been thinking about how the, the saints of old and the prophets of the Old Testament who had gone before them had been given a, a, an occasional brief glimpse of God's being. Uh, Moses requested of God, I pray you show me your glory in Exodus chapter 33 verse 18. And God's response was to say, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Uh, there was a time in the life of Elijah when his life was being threatened by Jezebel. He'd grown tired and f fatigued and, and fearful uh, from a confrontation that he had had in which he was threatened uh, by these people who were just wicked, false prophets. And so Elijah fled to Mount Horeb, um, almost undoubtedly thinking that if he went there, he could get away. He could survive. He could have maybe the same type of experience that Moses had when Moses went up on Sinai. We're told that God passed by the mountain and that there was a great wind, that there was a great earthquake, and that there was a great fire. Samuel also had an experience of being in God's presence. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So it seems that these are the types of things that Philip probably has in mind. He's thinking about one of these, you know, having one of these experiences. And so he says, show us the Father and it will be enough. Which prompts us to ask, enough for what, Philip? Enough for what? He, he seems to be thinking to himself, okay, Jesus has warned us of all this trouble that's ahead. The fact that He won't be with us. But if we disciples could just have some experience like Elijah had, or like Moses had, or like Samuel had, 
That'll be enough to get us through whatever lies ahead. That'll be enough to get us through our troubled times. That'll be enough to still our troubled hearts. If Jesus would just give us a physical, audible, visual demonstration of God's power and glory, it will be sufficient. It will be enough to comfort us and to strengthen us. Now I think, before we chastise Philip too much here, I think that there's probably a sense in which most of us can greatly, closely relate to what Philip is probably thinking here. Uh, How many times, friends, have you been fearful? Or, Or maybe you're going through a trial, and you thought to yourself, if only God would fill in the blank. What do you want? Fill in the blank. If only God would do something here, it would be enough to get me through this. It would be enough to comfort me. It would be enough to strengthen my faith. It would be enough to strengthen my resolve. How many times have you thought like that? That's what the flesh does. It's common for many Christians who are in the midst of a trial particularly, and it's particularly common in certain Christian circles in which miracles are not only desired, uh, not only sought, but oftentimes even manufactured. Why do you think faith healers draw a crowd? It's because people have a tendency to think this way. That's why faith healers draw a crowd. Part of it has to do with the false hope that they sell people, but part of it is that so many live their lives under the illusion that life would be so much better, or that life would be so much easier, or that our conditions would be more manageable if only God would reveal Himself in a visual way, or in an auditory way, in some way that is tangible. That's right, I said that that is only an illusion. It's only an illusion. The truth is you would not be more likely to believe and you would not be more likely to obey even if Jesus were to communicate to you in an audible or visual manner. You wouldn't be free of fears and doubts and anxieties if Jesus were to just appear to you visually. The tendencies to disobey or the tendencies to disbelieve don't exist because you've never physically seen or physically heard Jesus. And the disciples are proof of that, by the way. No, these things exist. These tendencies to disobey and disbelieve exist because a remnant of the flesh remains with you. And as uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to each other. And the same that is true of you and me. Our tendency to, to, to want to think that that would make it so much easier if only fill in the blank. If only God would you know, fill in the blank. The same that is true of you and me is also f- true of Philip. A demonstration of God's power wouldn't comfort him. A demonstration of God's glory wouldn't strengthen him. Contrary to what he seems to be thinking here, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be sufficient to help him and the other disciples endure through whatever lies ahead. Philip is thinking the way that the world thinks here. See, the way the world thinks, and the way that we're inclined at times to think, is to think that seeing is believing. That's the world's way of thinking. 
that seeing is believing. But as we have repeatedly seen through John's Gospel, the idea that seeing is believing is not how faith works. Not how faith works at all. In God's kingdom, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. Believing, faith, is the lens that enables us or allows us to see. Think about it this way. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 families and not a single person among them, probably 20,000 or so there, and not a single person among them believed. Or what about when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? And the Pharisees knew that He did. What happened? Were they convinced? Oh, Jesus did a miracle. Now I believe. No. They were hardened in their resolve to murder Jesus. And not only murder Jesus, but assassinate uh, Lazarus as well. That was their plan. Believing is seeing in God's kingdom. And so Jesus refutes what Philip is saying. He, he rebukes Philip here. He challenges Philip's claim that a glimpse of the Father's power and glory would be sufficient, that it would be enough. And so he very forthrightly asks Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Remember that Philip was present at every single miracle that is in the Bible that he's recorded as doing in John's Gospel, as far as we know. Philip was there. He saw them all. He had seen the feeding of the 5,000 families. He'd seen Jesus give sight to a blind man. He'd seen Jesus heal a man who had been crippled for his whole life. He'd seen Jesus raise Lazarus from death to life. And if those miracles weren't enough for him, what makes Philip think that one more is going to be sufficient? It's like, what do you need? Not miracles. Not a display of God's power and glory in a physical, tangible way. There's a huge twist that gets lost in translation in this dialogue that helps us understand what Jesus is saying to Philip here. The, the Greek language has several words that get translated as seeing. They all carry different connotations and implications, and in this way, it's kind of similar to, uh, to love. We know that in Greek, there are several words that get uh, translated uh, to, in, into love in the English language. The most common Greek word that gets translated as seeing is the Greek word blepo. Blepo, which means to perceive with the eyes. Uh, it's to see the physical, to see what is physically there, just like you know, those of you who are here right now, you can physically see me. You, you, you can see me with your eyes, uh, just like those who are watching the live stream. You can, you can see me physically right now. Uh, that's the word that John uses of the formerly blind man, for example, back in chapter 9. John wrote in verse 7 there, so he, the formerly blind man, went away and washed and came back seeing, blepo, physically perceiving. A second Greek word that gets translated as seeing is uh, theorio, uh, which is the Greek word from which we derive words like theory and theorize. And based on that, you might guess what it means. It means to view mentally or to consider, to ponder, 
that's the word that John actually used back in chapter 9 with the, the formerly blind man in the very next verse when the blind man's neighbors saw him. Uh, verse 8 in chapter 9 said, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? So not only did the neighbors physically perceive the formerly blind man, but they were perplexed. They were theorizing. They were trying to understand and they're considering what in the world could have caused him to gain the ability to see. A third Greek word that gets translated as to see is horao. Horao. Uh, this word means uh, becoming acquainted with or knowing by experience. Uh, to see something with understanding. When Jesus heard that the formerly blind man had been excommunicated from the temple, he went to find him. And upon finding this formerly blind man, Jesus asked him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man's response was to say, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? To which Jesus said, You have both seen him. In other words, you know him by experience. You have both seen him and he is the one talking with you. Now, I'm not here to, to teach us Greek, by the way. I am nowhere near qualified to teach that. But these different words for seeing become important when we're trying to understand what Jesus was saying to Philip. When Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father, he was using that third word, for see, which means to see with understanding. So what Jesus was saying is he who has seen me with understanding has also seen and understood the Father. So Philip would have seen and understood the Father if he had understood Jesus. Ah, so Philip doesn't need to see the Father. What does he need to do? He needs to understand Jesus. He doesn't need to see the Father after all. He, he needs to see and understand Jesus more fully, more completely, on a higher level than he already has. And so what's happening here is that Jesus, in response to Philip's request to see the Father, to see Him in a physical sense, just like you, you see me now, Jesus is redirecting Philip to Philip's greatest need which is to see Christ with understanding. There's a principle here that serves as a significant part of the very foundation of the Christian faith, and that is that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God, eternally God, that He took on flesh and was born into our world in order to reveal God to us, among other things. But what we understand is that Jesus is the full and true revelation of God. He alone is capable of showing us what God is like. Because as Paul writes to the Colossians, in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Nobody else. Only in Jesus. Now remember, this is something also that John told us at the beginning of his gospel testimony when he wrote in chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God, referring to the Father, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, referring to Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now, there are a few ways that Jesus reveals 
what God is like to us. The first is through His actions. We know that in, in ancient Israel, in their culture, Jesus would have been trained under His earthly adoptive father, Joseph, as a carpenter. Uh, Jesus would have been a carpenter too. Uh, the custom in ancient Israel was that the father would teach the son everything there is to know about his trade. All the techniques, all the ins and outs, all the details, all the habits that made him good at what he did. And so if you wanted to know how Joseph did this or did that or did whatever, one way would be to watch Joseph work, but another way would be to watch Jesus work because he would have done what his father did. And in a very similar way, in a more full way, a greater way, Jesus revealed God the Father to humanity. He showed us what God is like, what he loves, what he hates, how he feels about things, how he handles the doubts of his followers, how he handles the doubts of those who don't follow him. How he views those with great earthly treasure. How he views those with little earthly treasure. And so on and so forth. In him, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And only in him. So that to know and to follow him is to know and follow God. To love him is to love God. To obey him is to obey God. To see Him with understanding is to see the Father with understanding. Friends, we, have, we all have a desperate need for God. To know God, to obey God, to love God, to serve God, the list goes on and on. And what Jesus says here shows us how that need is met. How that need is fulfilled. And it's fulfilled in Him and Him alone. Apart from knowing Jesus, a person cannot, does not and cannot know God. Apart from worshiping Jesus, a person does not and cannot worship God. Apart from loving Jesus, a person does not and cannot love God. Apart from believing in Jesus, a person can maybe claim some type of intellectual belief in God, uh, that's, by the way, the type of belief that the devil and his fallen angels have of God. Do they believe that God exists? Uh, of course they do. Uh, James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The indication there is that the demons are wiser than the person who doesn't shudder at the knowledge of God. Apart from believing in Jesus... Believing in more than just an intellectual sense, but in the sense of trusting with one's heart and whole being. Apart from believing in Jesus that way, a person can claim to have some kind of intellectual belief or knowledge of God, but they cannot claim to savingly believe in or know God. But also implied is, here in this text, is, is the idea that to see Jesus with understanding is to see the Father with understanding. And the more we know about Jesus, therefore, the more we know about God, the more we know about the Father. So what Philip is lacking here, what Philip is needing here, 
is an understanding of Jesus' relationship to the Father. And I suppose we can't blame him or fault him too much since people still get very confused about the doctrine of the Trinity. That's one of the main ways that a group becomes a cult is by misunderstanding the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. But what Philip needs is to trust in Jesus. To trust in Jesus. To look to Him because looking to Jesus is sufficient. Jesus alone reveals the Father because Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Him. And we're going to see that as the passage continues. Jesus continues to unpack the relationship that He has with the Father. So let's continue by looking at verses 10 and 11. Do you not, Jesus continues by saying, do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in Me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on My own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now, we, we should see, first of all, that there's a switch in tenses here in verse 10. Jesus says, do you, singular, do you, Philip, not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, plural, disciples, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. What Jesus is saying here is that He alone reveals the Father because He is in the Father and the Father is in Him in a unique way that does not apply to any other human being in all of history. The Father and Son are separate and distinct from one another in their personhood, and yet there is a unity of both essence and being between the Father and the Son. Jesus is a good man, but He's more than just a good man. The prophets of the Old Testament were good men, relatively speaking, and yet not a single one of them ever claimed what Jesus has claimed here in this passage. Not a single one of them ever claimed anything as scandalous and outrageous as this, that to see Him is to see God. If Jesus was only a good man or a prophet, He would have been insane or He would have been a liar to have made this kind of claim, that to see Him is to see the Father. But Jesus is, He's a good man, but He's not just a good man. He's a prophet, but He's not just a prophet. He is God incarnate. God in human flesh. As the Nicene Creed states, Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Now, if you have some idea about what you think God is like, but it doesn't line up with what we see in Jesus, your idea about God is false. Conversely, if you have some idea about Jesus that doesn't line up with what the Scriptures tell us about God throughout the Old Testament, something is off. They perfectly align. There is a perfect harmony between them. Philip 
had thought that if Jesus would just show him and the rest of the disciples the Father, it would be enough. If only Jesus would show them God's power and God's glory, it would be sufficient. It would comfort the disciples. It would strengthen them for what was ahead. But Jesus, in His response to Philip, has thoroughly refuted, completely debunked, the idea that some kind of sensory experience is what we need. Visual or auditory miracles do not strengthen us or comfort us in times of hardship and challenges. And by the way, this is the same, same message that God gave to Elijah in that passage in 1 Kings as uh, Elijah went to Mount Horeb to get some kind of supernatural experience from God. Elijah's running for his life. He's fearful. He's a wanted man and, and he knows that the hunt is on. He needs strength. He needs comfort. He needs courage. He, he thought that seeing God physically, experiencing God in some uh, tangible sense, would be sufficient. And yet, he learned an important lesson about himself and about the futility of physical demonstrations of God's power and glory that day. We read this in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11-13. to 13. We read, So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake... But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Elijah thought that some kind of demonstration of God's power and glory was what he needed. But instead, where did he find God's presence? Where did he find the resolve to leave the cave and go back out? It was in the sound of the gentle blowing. Now, that phrase, a gentle blowing, is translated perhaps better in the King James Version, which translates it as a still small voice, or in the English Standard Version, which translated as a low whisper. What it's telling us is that Elijah found God in the quiet revelation of God's Word. That's where he gained strength. That's where he gained courage. That's where he gained resolve to go back to doing what the Lord had called and equipped him to do. It's only after hearing this, this low whisper that Elijah has the courage to once again wrap his face in his mantle and go back out to the entrance of the cave. Friends, I know that the past year and a half has been so trying for, for so many people. And if you set your eyes, if you set your mind on the things that are going on in the world and the direction that the world is going, you are going to find a million, millions of reasons to be anxious, millions of reasons to be fearful. But the place to find strength and courage for today, the place to find faith that will sustain you through whatever lies ahead tomorrow, it's all found by seeing Jesus and seeing Him with understanding. So where do we learn about Him? Where do we see Jesus in a way that we can gain an understanding of Him? In His Word. 
in His Word. Open up your Bible and look for Him. That's where you will find Him. And, and don't just look for Him in the New Testament either. Just open up the Old Testament too. You will find types and shadows of Him in the Old Testament. You will find pre-incarnate encounters He has with people when He comes as the angel of the Lord. Think of the words of the disciples whom Jesus encountered on the road to Emmaus. Think of what they said when they were changed, when they were comforted, when, when they were strengthened in their resolve. They turned to one another after their encounter with Jesus, and they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road, while He was explaining the Scriptures to us? That's where you see Jesus with understanding. That's where you gain understanding. You don't need to physically behold miracles and the sensational. They will not necessarily give you a stronger faith. They will not necessarily strengthen you. They will not comfort you in times of grief or anxiety. They will not fill you with courage when you are feeling afraid. What you need is to know and understand God by knowing and understanding Jesus as He is revealed throughout Scripture. Amen. You may remember that Peter was present for a lot of miraculous events too. And Peter actually saw something that Philip didn't. He saw one of the miracles that Philip didn't. He saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark tells us of Jesus being transfigured before them, adding, and His garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as so no launderer on earth can whiten them. And this is followed by a voice from heaven shouting, shouting down to them, telling them, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And yet, listen to what Peter says when he writes in recalling that occasion. He says this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have heard the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Do you follow what he's saying there? He's acknowledging that he had this, this, uh, this encounter where he saw Jesus transfigured. But he doesn't say that we all need to have that same kind of experience that he had. Instead, this is what he says. He says, we have something made more sure. And what does he do then? He goes on to point to Scripture. If we look to God's Word we will find Jesus there. And by the illumination given to us by the Helper, the Holy Spirit, we'll see Him, we'll see Jesus with understanding. And that's where God's presence will strengthen us and fill us with hope and courage. So Jesus concludes this passage by giving us two reasons to believe that whoever has seen Him, seen with, with understanding, whoever has seen Him has seen the Father. First, His Word. What He says. He says, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. He's not saying anything that's outside of the will 
of God. He never said anything that was outside of the will of God. It was never His own initiative. Jesus never spoke in a way that didn't reflect the nature and the will of God and the mind of God. He is the mouthpiece of God. What He says, God says. The things that Jesus said were the exact words that the Father would have said. Jesus' will was always perfectly aligned with the Father's will, including what He spoke. The things that Jesus has said throughout the Gospels prove that He reveals the Father. Philip and the disciples should have understood the relationship between Jesus and the Father because Jesus has pointed this truth out to all of them on multiple occasions before this. But Jesus' words were always true. And they all demonstrate that what He said, that what the Father was saying, and that the first reason to believe His claim to be in the Father and the Father is in Him was by His words. But if that's not enough for you, Jesus points us to His works. He says, believe Me that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So His words and His works. Which works? Which works of Jesus' reveal the will of the Father? Reveal the Father? All of them. Every single one of them. But look especially to Jesus' greatest work, which was done on a cross where He stood in the place of all of the sinners throughout human history who would believe savingly in Him. He took the sins of all who would believe in Him upon Himself, removing the sin of His people from them, bringing them cleansing, bringing them forgiveness, bringing them reconciliation with God. And He was crushed as He bore the penalty due our sin. Nobody else qualified to do this. Only Jesus could do this work. On the cross, He also clothed us in His own perfect, sinless righteousness, crediting, imputing His righteousness to us by grace through faith. There has never been a greater or more compelling work than this in all of human history, friends. His works all demonstrate that He's in the Father and that the Father is in Him. His resurrection also proves it. If it wasn't the Father's will for Him to raise, would He have? Nope. But it was. So His words and His works both attest to this truth that He's in the Father and the Father's in Him and that whoever has seen Him with understanding has seen and understood the Father. The words and the works of Jesus Leave every single person on the face of the planet with no excuse for disbelief. Because Jesus and the Father are one, to see and know Jesus is to see and know the Father. Thus, if we are to know God, we must understand that Jesus is the true and fullest revelation of God. Let us therefore all examine ourselves and ensure that we truly know and understand Christ. Not, not that we see Him physically, although someday we will. Someday we will. But that we see Him in the sense of understanding Him. When you need strength, when you need comfort, when you need the presence of God, it's found in Scripture. 
by seeing Jesus with understanding. So look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Find Him in His Word and know, know with understanding that He is sufficient for everything you need. Everything you need. That's what Philip and the disciples needed to see and understand. The complete, utter sufficiency of Christ. And friends, that's what we need too, above anything else. May we look to Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the sufficiency of Your Word. Thank You that it reveals Christ to us with understanding. We pray, O Lord, that by the Spirit working within us, that we would have a greater, more robust understanding of Him, and that knowing Him and seeing Him with understanding would prove to be sufficient for us. We thank You for the way that Your Word challenges us, for the way that sometimes it rebukes us, for the way it corrects us. And Lord, we turn from any fleshly understanding of, of who You are apart from Jesus. And we thank You that You reveal Yourself fully in Him. And so we pray that we may have a fuller, deeper understanding of Him in order that we may know and see You. We ask these things that You would comfort us and strengthen us and that You would fill us with courage to do what You have called us to do. Like Elijah, it's so tempting for us to hide in a cave. But Your Word calls us out into a dark world that needs light. And so we pray for courage to do that, to shine the light of Christ into the darkness that by Your grace, Your people may come to understand. Your people will hear His voice and believe. We pray these things for the glory of Christ and in His name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.